The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, how you doing, man? I am doing great. I am looking out my window at a snowy Midwestern day. Yeah, it's a it's a balmy nineteen degrees, though, if you think about it. So it's a dry cold right it's a dry cold that makes it <laughs> it's a dry concerning. cold yes yeah. yeah it only really hurts your bones when that 20 mile an hour gust of wind hits you that's when it's uh, super yes. fun yes yes now we had snow uh, earlier this week so you, apparently it's just transitioned its way up to you so exactly actually that's that's one of the main reasons i watch the weather in your area because i know in about 48 hours to 72 <laughs> hours that's what i'm gonna be getting roughly so so we do for you. We, we're glad that we can uh, be the soothsayers of your weather. Well, except for usually we don't get tornadoes, not in our area anyways. But other than that, like if you are like, it's a generalized weather. Like if you're getting snow, we'll generally get some snow. If you're getting some rain, generally right. we'll get some rain. But like nothing specific. Like when I see people from back home, like I got three inches of ice. I'm like, well, I'm not getting that. So I'm not too worried about that. So... Touche, sir. Touche. Also, on the flip side, heat. It's also not the same with heat. We're much more mild where I'm at. So when you guys are like, hey, it's 107. I'm like, nope. <laughs> not going to get that either. So, Well, it's not so much the 107. It's the 98% humidity that goes along with it to where you're chewing the air. Yeah, that's good times. I really liked your explanation a couple episodes ago where it's like, get a soaking wet towel. Put it over your face and then walk into a you know like a blast furnace. That's pretty much yeah, what this is like. I'm like yeah. yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But no, otherwise everything here is going great. No real complaints. So super Good. fun. Yeah. Same here. I mean, things are pretty well. Offices staying busy. We're seeing tons more flu again, but we kind of expected it. That's how it waxes and wanes a little bit. And uh, it's my weekend to work, so I'm sure it'll be uh, a fun. Fun-filled weekend of work. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, we we are seeing, I would say, probably average. Like, I don't think we have had any major ups or downs in my location. So that's that's neither good nor bad. Um, I, I think our, our population density is much different here, though. So a little different for us up here. Uh, if only, though, Ben, there was some kind of medication yes. or shot that people could take 
if only. that could could possibly prevent this such this god words are so hard today <laughs> this sort of illness. words are hard well i also think this is a unique recording issue for us because we usually record late at night and this is the first thing in the morning yeah yeah we're brain functioning yeah i like looked out the window i was like why is the moon on fire so <laughs> like so much light actually recording this probably shortly before we're going to release this i'm hoping to get this released uh later today which today we're recording this on a sunday so it's bright and early sunday morning as opposed to a uh late sunday night or monday night when we're actually recording so everything is off everything dogs is off. sleeping with cats it's raining <laughs> upside yes. down anarchy lots of dogs living together where are you bill murray if it wasn't copyrighted i'd tell you insert that quote right now right mass hysteria so uh I understand you have a little shout out you want to do, right? I do. Thank you for reminding me. So I was contacted by a new listener. So this goes out to Courtney. Just so you know, we do pay attention to the listener mail here. And she gave me a really interesting fact. She had a younger passenger in the car. Hello, Ava. And apparently Ava took to making fun of me while listening to to the podcast so i would like to point out to everybody that i hear everything ava and while miss courtney i hope you have a wonderful day ava i hope you trip and fall so there there's my uh there's my shout out well i mean my thought is ava just knows what i do which is make fun of you so i mean you know she just she's falling into line with how we do the show well that's wonderful (laughs) So, <laughs> uh, well, speaking of uh, you know, listener mail and all kinds of stuff like that, man, uh, the first part of this episode, uh, we got quite a few comments and stuff. I was kind of uh, surprised, and a lot of them were were positive. I don't really get a whole lot of negative stuff this time, which kind of shocked me. Should we actually explain what we're doing this episode? Oh, we probably should. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, for those that are keeping up with what's going on and. As Ben said, keeping in line with everything else that's been a jumble so far this episode, we are recording the intro today to what's going to essentially be part three on an education episode for the Just Some podcast between Ben, Jeff, and I, and we go more into the end training of the master's degree and the terminal degree so that's kind of where this episode lies yeah so this will be part two um so i was speaking of part part one earlier but we got an instagram message from uh one of our followers there that said that they appreciate uh the last couple of podcasts she was awaiting the follow-up uh, she's been an rn for 11 years before she went on for her msn and fnp she thinks that RN experience is needed, as well as limiting class sizes and also having the program procure the preceptors. And then uh, I've had several other people comment that they uh, liked the show. Our buddy in Mississippi was like, dude, I could have uh, I could have spoke on that stuff. And I said, well, I suspect that this will not be the only time that we do this episode or education aspects of the episode. So, The guy in Mississippi. Yes, the guy in Mississippi. Did he send the letter in crown or like how how did he communicate this to you? Hieroglyphics. Ah, 
that that sounds pretty advanced for that guy. I figured he just had like a squirrel bring you a tin can on a really long string or something. That's I'm not sure. Cool. I would I would like <laughs> that actually. I mean, not gonna lie. You get over there yonder with this 1,200 miles of string there, Bojack. Like I don't know what I don't know what he did, but <laughs> Bojack. That's a... <laughs> Bojack the squirrel. I don't know. I don't know what he's got. So. I kind of want to squirrel in a name in Bojack now. <laughs> Just want you to know. This is Bojack Cletus. Oh, wow. Okay. So, Tom. He's probably got a dog named Geech. <laughs> I don't even know what that, How the hell do you react to that? I don't know. Um, yeah. So. Whew. Okay. So our conversation with Jeff went long, and that's obviously why we broke it up into two episodes. Uh, but because the conversation went longer on this episode not going to do a story that you may have missed however we did get an email and uh, i wanted to share it on the air and figure we could discuss it a little bit there tomas this is in lieu of story you may have missed all right i guess all right so this is from James. Uh, says, hello, Ben and Tom. First, I'd like to say I enjoy your podcast and have been listening for a while now. The comedy is very entertaining and subject matter very informative. As a hopeful future nurse practitioner student, I discovered your podcast to begin learning the real depths of the, about the profession. I just listened to the podcast titled Nurse Practitioner Education Part 1, and I am hopeful to broach the discussion involving pre-admission requirements, including job experience. Overall, I feel in agreement with your views about requiring job experience before applying to an NP program. However, I feel there are exceptions should be investigated. My story may serve as to enlighten this issue. I have currently been a registered nurse for the past year, and I graduated with my associate's degree and are pursuing the RN to BSN to MSN option through my local university. I've heard these comments before about needing nursing experience prior to applying, and I found this to be a major hurdle in my goals. However, prior to my nursing career change, I worked as a 911 paramedic in a busy metropolitan city. Over seven years, I accrued over 15,000 hours of patient contact where I autonomously diagnosed and created treatment plans for a variety of patient conditions. Treatment protocols were followed within the current emergency medical guidelines. However, nurses also used protocols in the hospital setting. During my pre-hospital career, I saw many patients multiple times within a year, and this provided the ability to follow their care through the ER and with their PCPs. Do you feel providers with other healthcare-related experiences can abridge their nursing experience? I completed a paramedic to RN bridge through my local community college and feel no real clinical expertise was attained. Education related to learning the nursing model and unlearning the type of autonomy granted by my prior working environment. I hope my question provides for an open and honest discussion on the matter, and I look forward to your future podcasts. So that was from James. Tom? Well, to answer the question, okay, so yes, I think there should be, in theory, a way to do this. However, I don't think that there's going to be a practical way of doing it, and there's a couple reasons why. The first is, he said, healthcare professionals. So both my wife and her best friend are respiratory therapists. I think that they have lots of very good clinical experience. They assess patients, they do treatments, they do follow-up. Now, clearly, it's on a very specific system in the body. Right. But they work much more individually than nurses do. 
like they set their own vent settings. They do all their stuff. They work at a very large hospital uh, where the respiratory therapists are allowed to be independent. The point is, though, is so are we going to start saying, okay, well, respiratory therapists are now if they came over to these programs, would they be able to do this? I think the question becomes, James, is you are the one in the million. Most paramedics are not going to have 15,000 hours of experience doing this. Not every paramedic is created equally. I know paramedics in other parts of the country, they are working for private services and doing transports. They are not gaining the type of experience you may have gained in a major metropolitan area. So again, we're creating a disparity in that incoming class quality. If we start saying, well, this is this, it equates differently. I, I wish there was an easy way to say, well, if you're that one in a million, you can test out. But the, the point I was trying to get at through the first couple episodes is that I think there needs to be a standard that we all need held to. And if the standard says you need X amount of hours in nursing, then I, if, if we come up with a reliable way that we as a profession say, you know, this many hours as a paramedic or this many hours as a respiratory therapist equates to this many hours working as a nurse, then I'm fine with it. But See, I, I just, I'm afraid of James sounds very qualified. I'm afraid of the person that's working for a private ambulance service. Who's only done some transports for three years now thinks that, Oh, well I can, go into the same thing they're not they're apples and oranges at that point yes and no and it, and, 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 and to me and to me that's the same thing not to cut you off but to me that's the same thing as when we have that's the reason for hours versus years versus what types of education and nursing i think should be looked at for a nurse practitioner for that same reason is if i worked part-time in an ltac is that the same as a person that's worked like, let's say five years. Okay. So if I worked five years part-time in an LTAC, is that the same as working five years full-time in a level one trauma ER? No, it's not. But if we just say that the equivalent is five years of nursing experience, they both would qualify. And so that's where I'm like saying, like, we need to be a little more standard on what we're looking for to get out of this. Like I, I don't think that you're going to get a 100% accuracy rate, but we certainly need to be very clear on what we're trying to gain by making these standards. Okay. A few thoughts on what you said. I feel like... One thought. You get one. Shut up. And it's I feel Tommy's like right. the... <laughs> no, Tom is not right. So I feel like the comparison of uh, like the healthcare professional, you know, respiratory therapist versus paramedic and paramedics much more they look at every body system as opposed to respiratory therapy looks at one correct and so and paramedics are very autonomous and i think you have a a similar skill set between a paramedic and a nurse agreed so i feel like the the paramedic hours could certainly translate now are you going to have those ones who like you said are just working and they do transports sure the flip side of that, though, is you're going to have a nurse who maybe she works full time at a nursing home 
and that's all she's ever done. And she did that for 2000 hours. Well, by your criteria, then she has met the requirement. Uh, so, I mean, I think paramedics, I think like combat medics, things like that, that are going to, I think that experience can translate more into the base wheelhouse of a nursing experience prior to building on the advanced practice nursing. Okay, so maybe I wasn't clear. I'm not opposed to it. What I'm saying, though, is we have got to find, if we're going to do it, which, again, I'm not totally anti, I'm just saying we need to find a standard that everybody needs to be brought to because not everybody's James. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying paramedics. I'm not even saying respiratory therapists can't do it. What I'm saying, though, is we are going to have to figure out what that equivalent is, set that standard, and then make people follow that standard because James is the one in a million. Most people are not going to be James. That's all I'm saying. I think Christine, I'd be interested to hear what she had to say about this. Christine from Antidotes, Stories of Medicine, because that's she's followed a very similar path. Okay, but that's, that's two. I, How many paramedics I, have you met in your life? I've met a lot. That's two. Quite a few. Shut yeah. up. So... <laughs> What I'm saying is I just think we need to create a standard for both nurses, paramedics that want to make that bridge, respiratory therapists that want to make that bridge, et cetera. And you're right. I'm not saying respiratory therapy and paramedic are equivalent either. What I'm saying, though, is whatever professions we say can make that bridge. There has to be a standard. Even if we decide that they can make that bridge, which I'm not even set on. And I I know that's unfair to James. And I know that'd be unfair to Christine. But at the same time, if the standard is you need so many hours working as a nurse, how, how do we weed out the one out of a million? At, at some point, it has to become, I'm sorry, it sucks to be you because you're an overachiever. I don't know. I don't know what else to say. Because the point of the standard is that we get uniformity coming in and out. Yeah, but I think you get uniformity with a uh, you know, so many hours of this can equate to so many hours of this and that's just my personal opinion not that we're you know setting a standard because well we as we as you'll find out in this episode we don't really have one and that's what we continue to talk about well and that's fine i I think that should be the point of this this needs to become an ongoing conversation and i believe even if we set a standard as a profession like we keep saying five thousand hours so let's just use that so let's say five thousand hours of nursing becomes the standard before you can apply to nurse practitioner school. You know what? In five, 10 years, we need to reexamine that. Is that still an applicable standard? We need to continually assess whether that this is the optimum or prime setting for what we're doing for our patients, for the nurses that are getting that training, et cetera. Uh, I, I don't think that there's many times where we can do this. So just like we only take one certification, but we continuously have to certify that we're staying up with our education. So I'm okay with that in most cases. I think that as long as we're examining what we're doing and saying that, yes, this is still up to date, that this is still the best practice, that we're going to do what's best for our profession and our patients, then we should we should keep with that plan and move forward. So that's... I like that idea. I would say, James, when you're listening, I'm not dismissing you. I think that there may be a way to figure it out. I just think if we're going to do it, we need to find the right way to do it and give everybody the same standard. That's what I'm getting at. Well, James, thanks for the letter. Tom, 
I think we're going to throw the episode and let everybody finish listening to, to uh, our conversation with Jeff, and then we'll get you guys on the flip side of that interview. Sorry, Tom, what was your third point, if you remember? <laughs> From the educational aspect, it's with this massive influx, there doesn't seem to be a way to adequately train all these nurse practitioner students that are coming in. I mean, I myself have already been involved in the education of a couple. That's fine. And the problem isn't so much those couple. I've had really good students. They were all wonderful. No problem. I've had to turn down a lot since then. I was like, oh, yeah, nope. I turned down. I've got a lot of other stuff going on. So in my head, I'm going, my God, <laughs> how, how, how much is going on? And it's not that I don't want to help somebody out. But in my head, I'm just like trying to do a rough estimate. I'm like, holy cow, I'm more nurse practitioner. And I understood how hard it was for me. Ben is aware of some of the hardships I had to go through to get my training. That is a complete failure on the education system of allowing this to happen. That we are saying you can go into these programs and, oh, by the way, it might take you multiple years to finish this program because nobody's going to train you. I had countless times either, A, we don't take students, B, we take students, but only PAs, or third option, sorry, I can't remember if I said three or C, so I was like, oh, whatever that one is. C. C. Third C. That option. one. That last option was going to be, yeah, we'd be more than happy to take you as a student in about two years. So I was like, holy cow. So I, I did some extremes to finish my training. But then you also read some of these horror stories where people are paying lots of money for very piss poor training. And in some cases, again, talking about social media, they're airing it out there. Well, I have a preceptor and all I do is follow them around and they won't teach me anything. I'm like, oh, that's really what you want to see, that they're going through a program and they're literally learning nothing. They're airing out that they're learning nothing and yet they're going through a program. Well, I think part of that problem is the way preceptors are approached and the expectation that has been placed on preceptors. Most preceptors and most programs do not pay preceptors. So you take a, somebody takes a student for 150 hours a semester or 250 hours a semester, and you multiply that by three semesters because there's always a summer term, and you're looking at a year's worth of time spent with trainees for which you're not compensated by any stretches of imagination. You are spending extra time whether it is extra time at work, extra time charting, or running behind, or you're changing your patient load to try and be able to keep up with the demands of educating a trainee in addition to taking care of a patient. And at some point, that has to give. And where I think we're seeing it give is people being willing to precept just because of how much we invest in it and how little return we get. It, it seems that it has become an expectation that people in practice are willing to precept. And when folks say no, a lot of them catch a little bit of heat for it. Well, why, 
Why not? Well, because I'm tired. I need a break from doing it. And I will absolutely tell folks I've had two semesters in a row. I'm taking a semester or two off from students and there should be nothing wrong with it. Yeah. It used to be that I would take two or three students a semester. They wouldn't come on the same days. So the student with me almost every day of the week. And it's tiring. Well, and it's exhausting for patients too. I mean, they come in and they expect to see you and they do get to see you, but they go through two levels before they get to you. Your mm-hmm. MA or nurse who rooms them, then the student, then you. And the quantity of time that the patient ends up investing in the clinic is exponentially greater than anticipated. Their 15-minute visit became an hour to an hour and 10 minutes by the time it's all done. And you're running an hour to an hour, 10 minutes behind all day because you have to go through each of these steps before you can get in the room to see somebody. I think until the nursing education system figures out a different way to train people for that hands-on experience, we're going to be in the same boat. And, and I don't know what the answer is because schools don't have the funds to pay preceptors. Right. Physicians are paid to train their trainees. And when they're working in an educational institution, there is an expectation that some of the duties that they're going to have will be to educate other upcoming trainees. And that is built into a salary. It's not built into our salaries. Our employer is not going to pay us extra to train somebody who then finds a job as a competitor in the same market. Valid point. No financial sense to do so. One place I worked would not take students that were going to be coming and practicing in the same area because they didn't want to train their competition. And rightly so. I mean, it's hard to fault them for it. No, yeah, that's a valid point. I never, I had not considered that, but that well, yeah, makes sense. And that goes back to what Tom was saying about these, and I'm not going to, I don't like the phrase diploma mills. I do think that an education is provided. It's just the expectation of what work is put out by the student. I think that those programs have been termed diploma mills, have not necessarily had the cream of the crop of students and have had to kind of work with what they have. And so that reputation has become people go there just to get a degree. I've had excellent students from online programs and I've had terrible students from brick and mortar programs. It has less to do with the program than it does the student. I would slightly disagree with you because that's okay. You're okay to be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I could not resist. Sorry, Ben, go ahead. No, you're fine. You're saying that they're dealing with students that are not the cream of the crop, but if they had standards and guidelines to accept students, then they would necessarily not be dealing with students that were not cream of the crop students. But they do have that guideline. It's just their own. Yeah, I say I don't. I don't think it matters if it's an online or a brick and mortar. I think we're talking no, about a guideline, all. not talking about where it's located. We're talking about a professional and educational lack of standard. We're not talking about a location. I've been accepted to both. I thought I had a great time in education at my online 
university because I put in the work. I was willing to do that, but I understand the reputation, but I think it's more of the facade. Like people see because of these online ads or the fact that people are going there and they're like, well, how many students are going through it versus a brick and mortar? They know only 20 students are going to fit in a classroom, but in a virtual classroom, how many students can fit in there? So I think that's a perception issue as far as how many people go through it. I think what the ultimate base problem is the one that it goes more to what Ben is addressing, which is realistically, ultimately, nurse practitioners should have a standard that we should all be meeting before we go into it. And Jeff, you addressed that in the last episode where we talked about the quality of education before we even start. And so this is the pinnacle where they both meet the the standard and the education should be coming together for this degree, for the master's. I mean, we can talk about the terminal degree, but honestly, this is where the rubber is going to start meeting the road for the majority of us is at this MSN level, because this is where we're actually going to start practicing and taking care of patients. And I think this is where the standards need to be met and outlined and addressed. And even if you don't like the diploma mill, quote unquote, wording, to an extent, those schools have brought that upon themselves because as you said it's their guideline of what they're accepting but then when you're accepting everything that walks through the door i mean you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot and you're giving yourself that reputation for the dollar my opinion but at the same time i would say jeff is correct in the they are taking the money from those students but if the students still fail are they still passing i guess that's the ultimate question so if if, if the student's not passing and they're not getting through the program is it still a mill? At that point, I'd say no. So fair enough. where do you draw the line? You're right. I don't think they should be accepting every student under the sun. However, if they're as long as they're not allowing any level of work to just be accepted, that to me is the ultimate definition. Well, and we have an overarching accrediting body that has designed what sta- the standard for nursing education is at every level. And unfortunately... I don't know that some of those standards meet what the healthcare environment needs right now. And trying to get those standards changed is an arduous process at best, because not only does it have to change at one level, then you're looking at every program that has to change. Valid point. Where we get a same basic education each program is going to vary in how that education is delivered. And to expect identical delivery is a little unrealistic. No medical school is going to have identical delivery, but they have been around long enough and residents and true residency programs have been around long enough. Their training program has become a much more standardized process. The other piece that they have that we don't have are ongoing board exams. Uh, We have one board exam when we come out of training until, unless we want to subspecialize. And then we've got the opportunity to train in a subspecialty and then certify in that subspecialty and take another board exam. But ultimately it's not something that we have to do. And then when we go to specialize, we go to specialize by changing jobs. We don't go to specialize by necessarily going through a whole program. 
unlike a residency right. where you have an internal medicine physician who decides that they want to go into cardiology. And so they end up with a cardiology fellowship to learn that piece, or they go into a cardiology residency program to learn that piece. If one of us is interested in switching over to doing ortho, we don't necessarily have to go through anything resembling an orthopedic residency. We have to find an employer willing to do some training. And most of us who are wanting to advance into something more technical or more specialized have got a different educational drive. And we're going to shoot for whatever certification is offered there, partially because it helps us take care of patients. And the other piece though, I think is to help earn some of the respect of colleagues. Yeah. I don't, I don't, don't disagree with you. So I guess ultimately, where do we begin the process of change? Do we start it at the accrediting bodies or do we start it at the universities or do we start it at making perhaps standardizations of each university has to have some kind of, you have to have this to even get in and changing the quality applicant and starting there? I think it needs to start at the accrediting body and go down. The accrediting body, you know, does have the, the, the guidelines. And then, I mean, they're intentionally written vaguely and for interpretation by, by whatever university is enforcing them. Like one of the big things that was seen a lot last year was OCCNE come out and said that schools have to find you a preceptor for a nurse practitioner school. Well, it's what the guidelines said, but then the reality is, okay, well, they have to you know, put forth the effort and, as the university, I can send you a list of three people who may or may not be in your area and say, well, that there we tried. And so now it's up to you to find your own preceptor. So, I mean, there's this interpretation of, of the rule. And so I think if you were to start a standardization of, okay, whatever it is, two years, I think two years is, is, is a perfectly fine. You need that experience prior to applying for nurse practitioner school. I think that's where it starts. And I think it's, I don't expect every university to be, the exact same interpretation of the rules and the exact same program. But I still think there has to be some standardization at the beginnings to, like Tom said, kind of ensure that we're getting quality applicants. What about having it start with the educators? Okay. This is my confused look. <laughs> it's hard to tell, tell that different from your normal look. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The standard is going to have to change through the accrediting agency, but what is going to drive the accrediting agency to make that change? Students are not going to call for a more challenging program. Most of the students who are going through the program are trying to get through quickly and as unscathed as possible because a lot of these folks have got families and it becomes a financial burden to do this. But until the people who are actually delivering the product are able to start affecting greater change, you're not going to see a reason for an accredited body to make a change. I think that makes sense. and looks really good on paper. I think the application of that could be more difficult. Yeah. I think the execution is going to be a nightmare. Yeah. Well, because you're going to have resistance at almost every level. Looking at it from an educator standpoint, if you're pushing for higher standards, you're going to get resistance from your students because like you said, they're trying to survive the program. I think you're going to get pushback from your university 
because ultimately it's going to result in less students being there potentially, therefore less income coming in, therefore less teachers coming in or less teachers getting paid. And then you're going to get resistance from the accrediting agency because they don't want to change. Which is why I brought up that point because changing this process is going to be hard and it's going to have to happen from every direction. You're going to have to have educators who are willing to go out on a limb and take risks. You're going to have to have administrators who can look past the short game into the longer game and see what changing that standard would mean for their program down the line. It doesn't put butts in seats. It doesn't put dollars into banks. It doesn't put dollars into teaching salaries. But we're not talking about realistic right now. We're talking about what we're going to get from the best local memorial hospital. That's what we're asking for today. We're We're talking about what we're going to get. If we had our wish list, what would happen? True. We can sit here and talk about how we want to see folks have to have five years of experience or I'm sorry, 5,000 hours worth of experience or, or two years of experience before going in there. We want schools to find preceptors. We want preceptors who are going to be fully engaged and take the time to educate. We want an accrediting body that is going to recognize, hey, this system isn't working. Well, all of this is perfect world scenario. Very true. You've got to have two people who, two groups who are insisting on change. One's got to be the students. One's got to be the educators. And then you also have to have public. You've got to have public saying, I want this from my nurse practitioner. I want this from my healthcare provider. And until that happens and there is a demand across the board for change, we're going to see these fragmenting of these programs. And we're going to see programs that just like any other program, you're going to have physicians who graduate with A and you are going to have physicians who graduate with C. At the end of the day, they still have the same degree now. True. It balances out, unfortunately, down the road when physician C can't maintain a patient base. Same thing with with a nurse practitioner. If you've got a poor nurse practitioner, they're not going to maintain a patient base. The problem I that I foresee coming with Tom's example of the tsunami of new grad NPs are folks who have had, who've been in practice for a while and are at the top of the salary and can't really go anywhere. And you've got a saturated market and you've got NP who is going to cost this company dollars $40,000 less a year. Who are you going to pick? That's exactly one of the things I have tried to say in multiple conversations is I have a feeling our wages are going to start going down because when we go into contract negotiations and Jeff may cost them 120, but new guy over here is coming in and there's 17 of them and they're willing to do it for 80. Guess what? But Tom, you and I have disagreed on this on the show because and I don't. Well, you're allowed to be wrong. Jeff's already told you this. (laughs) Or maybe that was the episode that didn't make the air because we weren't able to because we lost the recording that night. But uh, this isn't fast food, and I think I I still think that you have organizations that are going to see quality over quantity and say, you know what, this provider has a huge patient base because they've been there for 15 years 
and they do good work, if I replace them with new guy, those patients are going to go somewhere else. Okay. We'll say that one holds water. I'll let I, Jeff's biting to, to say something. You could say it here in a second. Excluding that one example, all the 99 other cases of people all bidding for new jobs where you vacated that job and now they're, they're coming into it. Do you really think that they're going to pay a comparable wage to that coming into it? Nope. Coming into it? No. Over time? No, yes. No, I don't think so. Because they're, cause guess what? In two years when you're like, oh, it's time to renegotiate your contract, I don't have to anymore. If I, if it's where you and I disagree. Oh, you want, you're at 80,000, you want 82,000? Well, the guy next to you, he doesn't have a patient base either, and he only wants 80. But see, after two years, you're going to have a patient base, Tom. That's where you're, you're looking at it as a cookie cutter, and it's not, in my opinion. Okay. Well, I have a feeling the chief financial officers of these hospitals are looking at numbers. Okay. Yes. So- the CFO is looking at numbers, but the rest of the people realize that without the patient population, your number is going to be zero. Okay. So one last thing, Jeff, and then I will shut up and let you talk. So for instance, you live in a rural area and the next hospital system is an hour away. Those patients aren't going anywhere, Ben. So if it's not you, it's the next guy. They're not going to a different hospital. I disagree. Let's look at federally qualified rural health clinics. Every visit has a dollar value for folks who Medicare or Medicaid is payers. So the office may charge, we're going to use round numbers because it's late and math (laughs) is as hard as words sometimes. True. Let's say for a standard office visit, the office bills out $100. In the rural health clinic, every office visit is assigned a dollar amount based on the resources used. So that $100 bill actually collects $150 or $200 on each visit. That's the benefit of being a federally qualified clinic. You get help with some of those over that overhead expense. So mm-hmm. when a provider has been there for a time and has a practice, and then you have a new provider who comes in who doesn't have as big a practice, but still sees the same number of Medicare or Medicaid patients in a day, they're generating the same dollar value in revenue. They're costing that company less in overhead. We have had clinics close in my general geographic area. One clinic is 40 minutes from ours. There is a clinic that is 20 minutes away from the clinic that closed. I picked up patients that are now driving 40 to 45 minutes instead of going to that new one because they know the provider at the new one. That provider at the new one is an older provider, has been around for a while, and does things in a different way than other providers do. The patient is following what they, the type of care that they wish to receive and ducking away from the type of care that they don't want to receive. Companies see the value in keeping a provider in one place for a time for generating a patient base. But over time, as the accessibility of care changes, you're going to see people stay local just out of convenience because they don't want to drive so far away. 
I can see both pieces of what are of what each of you are saying. Tom, I do agree with you that companies look at that bottom line. And when it comes time to a contractual negotiation, if you have if you have an applicant, first if you you have to have an opening, but if you have an applicant who is willing to accept seventy five thousand dollars a year and an applicant who is insisting on a hundred thousand dollars a year, that seventy five thousand dollars looks a whole lot more attractive because over time, as we know in nursing, the only way to truly change what our salary is is to leave a place and start new someplace. Over time, that salary is going to remain lower than that $100,000 salary is. The length of time it's going to take for that $75,000 person to get up to a $100,000 base is going to take long enough that they're going to reap more financially from the money that's coming in. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm not saying I don't understand Ben's point. What I'm saying is, is let's say there's a clinic with a Ben established. I'm just saying when that bend leaves and that vacuum is created, then the process I'm describing begins. And, and I think to go ahead. That's when I think these problems are going to, you're going to see these problems start to multiply as providers with established. And it, it doesn't have to be retirement. Like so-and-so wants to move from point A to point B. Well, now you just create another vacuum. It doesn't have to be retirement. It doesn't have to be anything. It could be his wife got a job somewhere else. Who knows? It just means that there's now a vacuum. And I think as one nurse practitioner leaves and there's now 20 applicants for one job and they all are similarly qualified, they're going to be like, well, now I don't have to pay any of you as much. But when there's only three of us and we're all going, no, 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 no. The least amount you're going to pay one of us is a hundred grand. Guess what? Our median salary is still going to be a hundred K. And again, I'm using round numbers just to make this easy. But when there's 20 of us and one of us goes, no, I'll take, you know, 90. Somebody else goes, no, no, I'll take 85. Guess what? We're going to start seeing this trickle down. Mm -hmm. And I then agree. Ben's like, no, you're wrong. I, I don't. <laughs> I don't think that companies are going to necessarily punt an experienced provider out. No, no, no. I don't, I don't think that they will necessarily get rid of one, especially one with a large patient base. I'm talking about if he were to vacate his position and create a vacuum, they're not going to fill it with another guy coming in and go, Hmm, we got 20 guys. And, and especially in, a, in an area where out of convenience, they're not going to go to another healthcare system. They're going to go no. We're, we're going to plug and play. Well, and I think part of that also is going to depend on what the new guy can offer as far as bringing over a patient base. So say you're within 15, 20 miles of a clinic and we'll, we'll pretend for a minute that non-compete clauses are not mm. necessarily arduous anymore. We'll just, okay. we'll just go with that statement. Say you've got a 35 or 30 mile non-compete clause and you've got a clinic that's 31 miles away. If you're established at clinic A and decide that you're going to go to clinic B, you're going to have a certain percentage of your patient base follow you. And most places True. are going to anticipate 10 to 15, sometimes even as the highest 25%, but anywhere between five and 10%, I think is a fair, reasonable expectation to see patients follow you. If you're, if you're established for a 15, 20 minute drive or a 30 minute drive, 
that's not unreasonable. People drive that in this, in a large city every day, they just go about four miles. <laughs> when you're out, when in the sticks where a lot of us are, that 30 minutes is actually 35, 40 miles. Yeah. It's, it's just all a matter of perspective. That person becomes much more valuable to a company because they can see what revenue is going to come with them, what's going to follow them. Whereas you've got somebody who maybe doesn't have as broad a base that changes, but is going to come in at fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand dollars underneath what Ben is going to ask for. Then I, I think that you're looking at a company who who's going to have a hard time justifying that extra thirty thousand dollars. I mean, they're going to have to really be able to sh to demonstrate that they're going to see patients move and. And then you start looking at marketing strategies and that sort of thing for attracting patients. When I changed practices, one provider who had been at the established at the practice for a number of years was leaving. And so I walked into a pre-established practice and then brought patients with me. It made my salary much easier to swallow than it would have been coming in cold. The other piece is when you're negotiating your salary, and I know we've kind of drifted well away from education, uh, I'll right. try and find a way to bring us back. When you're negotiating your salary, you've got to know what you're worth and what kind of revenue you can potentially generate. And that's knowing what your business is and knowing what your numbers are. That's not a piece that is necessarily trained when we're in school. See, I told you I'd bring it back. Boom. We don't, that's not a part of our training. Contract negotiations are mentioned in training and we are taught a little bit about what our value is with respect to patient care, but to actually understand what our dollar value means to a company, we don't get. And I don't think we get that until we've had a year or two of experience to recognize yeah. that. You know, if I see this number of patients in a year, I am generating $500,000 in revenue mm -hmm. it, for the year. Now, I'm not talking about profit. I'm talking about just dollars generated by services provided. Right. Prior to in, in, insurance, contractual write-offs and non-pays yep. and everything else. Yeah. So when you're negotiating a salary, when you've got somebody who's coming in fresh as a new provider, not really knowing that piece, their value drops a little bit to that company because they really don't know what they're going to get. So I, th I think that while, while having that salary gap be created in a vacuum is a realistic concern, I think companies are going to be hard pressed to get rid of somebody who, when their contract is up to decide, mm, I don't think we're going to renew that. Most of us, when we negotiate a contract, negotiated in such a way that the non-compete clause becomes null based on certain conditions for separation of employment. Yes. And if there not, should. you need to consider it. Yeah, exactly. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Getting back to education briefly, because we went way long and I figured it's going to cut into two episodes anyway. Looking at the terminal degree, because Tom kind of mentioned that earlier, you know, as we kind of hit on MSN, so looking at the DNP. You know, the doctor and nursing practice. Me personally, one of the big changes that I would make for that is, and it goes back to a lot of what the comments were about the ADN and BSN is you know, cut out a lot of the crap in the papers 
and take that opportunity in that 18 months or whatever it is to go from MSN to DNP and focus on how can we improve the clinical experience? Whether you call it a residency program, quote unquote, whether you, whatever you call it, why can't we have more clinical type hours in that, that component? I think you answered your own question there though earlier when we talked about the availability and the accessibility of preceptors. So if you're going to create a residency program that say we're starting to try and push harder to come more into alignment with a PA type program and the number of hours that are required there, who's going to take that time with those trainees? Yeah. I mean, okay. I mean that's a legitimate well, I mean, point. where's, and unfortunately you have to say, what's the incentive? If you're a provider who works off of RVUs or has a component of their salary based on the RVUs generated and your productivity drops because you have students, you are taking money away from yourself. Who is going to volunteer to do that routinely? True. I, and I guess I'm looking at it through my personal experience. When I went through my DNP, I took that opportunity to explore something that I was not exceptional at which was interpreting radiology and use that as a catalyst to say, Hey, can I use this set number of hours to go down and sit with radiologists and have them educate me? And that has helped me personally tremendously because then it's, you know, like I tell my students, it's like, okay, you know, those pictures at the mall, like where you stare at it and it's supposed to like pop up and you're like, yeah, okay. That's very similar to how it was when he started pointing things out. He's like, okay, this is what you're looking at. This is, whatever, you know, this is the kidney, this is the gallbladder, or this is the, you know, an osteophyte off of the, you know, L5, whatever the case may be, you start to see that more. Um, and so, I mean, maybe that's where I'm looking at it is I would like to see more because it, from an MSN to a DNP, particularly, you are more than likely already practicing. Why can't we use that to further our education along to ultimately improve our patient? care. But like you said, the problem then is, I mean, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Yes. I think more education is great, but then who's going to provide said education? And unfortunately, a lot of the areas where the schools are located are in a smaller geographic community. And so you have a finite base of preceptors available, whether they be physicians, whether they be nurse practitioners, you exhaust those individuals and you burn that bridge and people need a break. Yeah. And I'm sure you have this problem, Tom, you'll have this problem. Eventually you're going to get exhausted with answering requests for students. I get no less than 15 a semester requests would, yeah. for students. No, I agree. I've yeah. got, yeah. I've got students right now who are scheduling time with me starting in 2022. Uh, yeah. I have students who, I think I have students booked out for the next two years as well. Yeah. It's just, and these are folks who aren't even going to start until then. They're saying, okay, here's when I'm going to be ready for clinical. Are you willing? And I, I can tell you that I'm, I will stand up to my commitment, but I've got, I keep track of the numbers that I have, so I don't get burnt out on it. And so I don't take a huge financial hit on it. And maybe that's where I would like to see the, the, the DNP portion of those hours maybe a little differently, whereas... You know, maybe you're not great at GI, you know, 
recognizing where you can improve in a strength and then trying to focus more. I don't want to say you're weren't specialized by any means, but I, I certainly think that we can, I'm sure I would gain a ton of insight into my practice if I spent even 40 hours following a gastroenterologist around and just learning that component. And I guess that's kind of where I would, I would just like to see that more, I don't want to say specialized because I don't think it's a specialty per se. I think it's more just, I would like to see, and, and again, just kind of improving our, our clinical experience to an extent that when we then get back into our family practice physician or taking better care of our patients. I'm going to continue to try and abstain from the DNP portion of this in large because I don't have a DNP, but <laughs> one of the things from the outside that seems like a problem with a DNP degree is it's trying to be everything. Like when you look at the description, when I was trying to look at programs for, do I want to go down a PhD track? Do I want to go down a DNP track, etc. DNP was like, oh, do you want to be an executive at a hospital? You can be a DNP. Oh, do you want to be a teacher? Oh, you can be a DNP. Oh, you just want to practice in your clinic? DNP. Like everything was DNP. At some point, I was like, what ultimately is it actually doing to improve my ability to take care of patients or any of these other things that they're saying it's going to do. Well, so, in, in academia, it's said to be a clinical doctorate. Okay. If it's a quote unquote clinical doctorate, then make it more clinically based. That's what I'm getting at is at some point we need to pull the trigger and say, okay, if, if this is going to be a research in academia, then it needs to stay with the PhD and the DNP needs to become the clinical that's just my opinion. I'm not Dr. Tommy, so I'm just saying. <laughs> but I think with that, then there comes the focus that you need to focus more on the clinical aspect. And maybe it's not even just clinical hours where you're you're following somebody around. I don't know. I just, maybe you need advanced, advanced, advanced patho or something to make it more of a clinical focus. Uber advanced. Yeah. I get the the project or the, the thesis or, or whatever the hell you want to scholarly project, whatever it's currently termed. I get that. Okay. That take that piece and then take the clinical components and that should all be all that is there. It shouldn't be adding in research or adding in more theory or adding in things like that. I think it should be more of a clinical focus. Again, my personal opinion. I think the difference is, when you and I both went through our doctoral programs, we were already in practice. Yes. Right now, the emphasis is moving people from a BSN through to a DNP. True. So okay. in that respect, there is a huge clinical component to that doctorate. For those of us who already have a master's degree and are moving up to the doctorate, that's where many times we're not seeing a true air quote clinical benefit until you stop and think about what you want to do clinically. If you're wanting to do research or wanting to get into policy to help change what clinical practice is, there's still that clinical component to the education that we receive as doctorally prepared practitioners. And those 
pieces, those policy pieces and career development pieces and knowledge development pieces have clinical value. It's just when we hear a clinical doctorate, we're thinking being in a clinical setting for the training, not necessarily being able to fully apply what we've learned to a clinical setting or to modify a clinical setting. And I, I really think it's just a change in perspective and how it's viewed. And maybe I am looking at it through just the MSN to DNP and, and you're right. The, the transition is now more BSN to DNP. So I, I would just be curious to see how much more the clinical component is going from the BSN to the DNP versus a BSN to an MSN. And maybe that's something I need to research. I think you're still looking at a similar number of hours and cynical and similar clinical experiences. Good Lord. Tommy's words, word problems leaning off on me. That's what I do. (laughs) But with having that similar experience, but coming in completely fresh, there's different value to it, to that student. When we have been fair enough doing it, when we've been in practice and had that exposure over time, I think that that clinical piece gets a little bit muddled and less clear to us. No, that makes sense. I'm with you there. Okay. So my question to you, Ben, would be why did you get your doctorate? Because I wanted to improve my education to improve my ability to take care of my patients, first and foremost. Uh, Secondly, it, it was something that, and when I talked to my wife about it initially, it was, it just felt like something that I needed to do. I was the first in my family to get my master's and I'm the only one in my family to have a doctorate. And so it was just a feeling inside of me that I, I felt like I needed that. Do I think that it's helped? Yeah. I mean, I, I I think it along with experience over, over time, but I mean, that, that was probably the the two big reasons why I, I went and pursued my doctorate. Well, we talked last, like we talked last week. My, I was a non-traditional student, and when I elected to go back to school, I made a decision between whether I was going to go pre-med or go into nursing. But my ultimate end was, no matter which direction I went, I was going to end up with a doctorate. I was going to end up with a terminal degree. When I graduated with my master's degree, I thought about going through a PhD program. I felt like I wanted the full nursing focus, which is why I waited until there was a DMP program that was accessible and affordable for me. I truly believe that earning that doctorate has changed the way I practice. It has definitely changed the way I look at policy. It has definitely changed the way I look at quality improvement studies. It has changed the way I view my role, not just in the clinic, but as a member of the medical staff and what my duties and responsibilities are professionally. In that way, this doctorate was a clinical doctorate for me because it has changed how I practice and it has changed how I look at practice. And I think that that piece is the piece we need to remember when we're talking about this, that not that it's not every uh, clinical doctorate has to be focused 100% on the clinical setting. Okay. You're, 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 you're convincing me. I mean, and I don't mean that bad. I mean that No. looking back now, I go, you know, I see what you're saying. I mean, I do feel like I, 
look at things as a whole differently. I have a better, like you said, a better understanding of policies or in, in quality improvement and just even the business, I guess, quote unquote of healthcare. Yep. There's a different gestalt once you, once you start doing these other pieces. And so when I hear people say that, oh, they don't see the value of it, they don't see the worth of it. I think all they're seeing are the letters and they're seeing the extra papers and the research analysis and the time spent in informatics and quality improvement. And they don't recognize necessarily what that education and what those pieces are going to do to modify their career down the road. And so I, it hurts me a little to hear people say, oh, there's no point to it. There is, it just may not be where you want to see your career go. And it may not be what you thought it would be to begin with. And in that, and I say to those people, well, what research did you do into what the degree meant and what the program was? And if you're not looking at what the program is and what you are potentially going to be getting out of it, and you go in there with the wrong expectations, then yeah, you're going to be disappointed when you come out. But that doesn't mean that that education didn't have value. I don't think that people always necessarily stop and think about what is different. I mean, just like you were saying a moment ago, you hadn't stopped and considered it in those little pieces here and there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, you maybe it is good the way that it is, and I just... And maybe it's one of those things where you kind of transition over time and so you don't per se notice it mm -hmm. until someone else points no, it out to you. And then it's like, oh, well, yeah, I guess that is. Yeah, that does make sense. Well, and that's the same thing that happened when we talked last week about the ADN to BSN and the difference there. It's not necessarily a matter of skill and clinical, but a matter of how you can change the system and how you can apply theory to improve care delivery and improve practice. And that's what the doctorate, in my opinion, is geared towards. Not only is it a terminal degree for our profession, it changes what the profession means to us and what our role in the profession is. Damn, that's profound. <laughs> It was an accident, I swear. Yeah. All right. Looks like Tommy fell off. Nope. Yeah. Just listening. Well, Ben, that was the end of our conversation between yourself, Jeff, and I. Yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> I think we uh, covered a lot of ground in the last three episodes in the education aspects of not just nursing, but nursing nurse practitioners. Yeah, I think we solved the world's problems. Um, they just need to listen to us. So, <laughs> I have been saying that since episode one, I think. Yeah, that's true. You have. No bell, here we come. Uh, so. <laughs> yes, I think. Uh, why aren't both of us getting a Nobel? I mean, I deserve two. I did that Sudoku thing. but that, That's true. You did, yeah. Both definitely. And Jeff can come watch us get it. So that's cool. <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, I hope everybody enjoys this episode. I hope we get as much chatter and, and discussion with this episode as we did with the previous episodes. And like we've kind of hinted about, this is probably something that we're going to occasionally touch on uh, 
it's a continuing to evolve process. So, you know, I, I think it's something that we'll continue to touch on. I don't think we can avoid it. I I think that's the whole point is that this process needs to continue and we need to keep having these conversations until effective change is made. Cause I think we all seem to agree. We may not have the exact answer, but we know what's going on now. Isn't it? Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Well, hopefully you uh, enjoyed this episode. You can always find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all at just some podcast. Our website is www.justsonpodcast.com. Our email admin at justsonpodcast.com as well. Reach out to us. Let us know what you think. Tom, I think we've hit three really pretty deep episodes here with all our education aspects. So maybe it's time for something fun. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. So <laughs> tune in next week. Hopefully it's going to be something a little bit more fun, a little bit more. Uh, we like to hit deep episodes, and then we try to break it up with some, uh, you know, a movie review or, or some smart-ass topic that we'll cover. Right? Yeah. Yeah, if you guys have some yeah. suggestions, we are uh, listening to your mail, unless you're Ava. I'm not listening to you. But everybody else, please send in your suggestions. Hashtag poor Ava. All right. Hey, on that note, <laughs> tune in next week and uh, see what we're going to do. So have a great week. Hey, everybody, stay safe out there. Practice swearing just to pass the time. I see why I am alone I caught some road bridge and I thought of you And all the many times you say I should have known Took a press so I could find my cheek Find mediocrities the best that I could do Yeah.